0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Ninja Gaiden, a side-scrolling platformer beat-em-up kind of game developed and published by Tecmo for the arcades in 1988 and the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1989, along with various ports of each title in the years that would follow. We're going to talk about that game in just a minute, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 46. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, And we also have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to interact with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We're out there a bunch every single day having all sorts of discussions. It is legitimately awesome. I should also mention that we do have a newly launched Patreon as of last week. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you feel like getting a couple additional podcast episodes every single month, some exclusive blog posts, a cool roll and color out on discord, that is the place to be. And as promised, I will be shouting out all of our Pantheon Patreon members. So a huge shout out and thank you to the following Pantheon Patreon members. We have Rich Senewald, David Moore and iso those are our three current pantheon tier members of our patreon community there are a few different tiers out there you can pick and choose whatever you want to do from a support perspective or just keep listening to the podcast that you're listening to every single week anyway because this will remain in place regardless of what happens at the patreon the Patreon's just a little bit of extra for those who may be interested for anyone who may be new welcome I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does that game sit in the overall spectrum of video and computer game history? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star rating or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls, and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that in order to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It hasn't aged a day. It is still an amazing experience, a certifiable classic. I highly recommend everybody play any game that reaches the Pantheon. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you have nostalgia for the game in question or you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. You are pretty much guaranteed to have a good time. Still highly recommended experiences, not quite Pantheon level, but still games that you should not miss. Just beyond the golden oldies are our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I can't recommend to the broad population. They may have aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You may still have a good time, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. You could still potentially have a good time but I cannot recommend these games to the broader gaming population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Ninja Gaiden. Ninja Gaiden is a side-scrolling platformer and beat-em-up title developed and published by Tecmo for the arcades back in 1988 and the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1989. Now before we can begin, it warrants mentioning that Ninja Gaiden's story is a bit unique. We have talked before about games that started their life as an arcade title only later to be ported to home consoles with various concessions and tweaks to the overall gameplay, graphics, story, and even sound. In some cases, the home version of the title was actually subjectively better than the original arcade version of the game, which we saw when we discussed Contra a couple months ago. Contra had originated as an arcade game and had a degree of success, but it was really the NES version of the game that garnered worldwide attention. Contra's arcade and home versions, though, were mostly the same game. The NES version, as an example, was designed to mimic the arcade title, albeit with various changes to better match the capabilities of the NES hardware. It's not like the two games were designed as different experiences. They were just kind of taking the appropriate structure depending on what system, console, or platform that they were running on. And I mention this because when we begin to talk about Ninja Gaiden, there's actually two intersecting stories we'll have to address. One is the creation of the arcade title, which followed fairly traditional arcade mechanics of the time. The other story, and the one that I find just a bit more interesting, is the creation of the NES version of the title, which interestingly was a separate project entirely, and was designed not as a port of the arcade version, but was instead intended to be a standalone experience. As we begin our story, I'd like to focus first on the creation of the arcade title, But before we can do that, we have to take a look at the arcade market of the time, and specifically, the emergence of one of arcade gaming's most popular genres, the side-scrolling beat-em-up action game. It's hard to imagine a time when side-scrolling beat-em-ups didn't exist, and we've talked a couple times previously about the genre. To start, though, let's go back to what was effectively the beginning of the genre and take a look at 1984's Kung Fu Master. Kung Fu Master was designed by Takashi Nishiyama, who in later years would become famous for designing the very first Street Fighter title. Back in 1984, though, Nishiyama was an employee of the IREM Corporation, and Kung Fu Master was just the second title he would be tasked with working on. Considered by many to be the grandfather of the beat-em-up genre, Kung Fu Master would present players with a purely side-scrolling two-dimensional experience— Where you'd control an expert martial artist as he traverses several stages filled with a variety of bad guys, obstacles, and bosses, all in the hopes of saving your kidnapped girlfriend. Similar in many ways to other side perspective fighting based games like Karateka, albeit decidedly less cinematic, Kung Fu Master would be one of the first titles that emphasized combat mechanics over traditional platforming elements as the core focus of the title. And even though it was fairly primitive by today's standards, You can very easily see how the game's design was effectively an early blueprint for what would eventually become the beat-em-up genre while kung fu master may have been the first true beat-em-up game it wasn't until 1986 when the beat-em-up genre would really come into its own and that happened with the release of renegade renegade was an arcade title created by technos japan and it would serve to introduce many of the common beat-em-up features that we now take for granted, such as a much more advanced fighting and combat system where you could dash, grapple, throw, and even pummel your opponents into submission. Similarly, important to the evolution of the genre was the inclusion of depth in the game world, meaning rather than simply walking left and right on the screen you had the ability to walk further back in the environment or closer to the screen, effectively introducing the use of what's known as the Z-axis to the beat-em-up genre. That would open up many more gameplay opportunities than were previously available. Beyond those mechanical evolutions, Renegade would become known for one other key contribution to the genre. It would become one of the first side-scrolling beat-em-up titles to introduce urban settings, with the player navigating the mean streets of a city with the intent of beating up gangs of bad guys in the hopes of eventually saving the day. Prior to Renegade, most beat-em-ups like Kung Fu Master utilized settings that mimicked the very traditional kung fu kinds of environments that were prevalent in martial arts movies, like karate dojos, picturesque mountaintops, and even serene meditation grottos. Renegade switched things up by introducing a more urban, city-based setting where gang warfare, rather than honor-driven kung fu, was the name of the game. The work completed on Renegade would eventually lead to an even more influential title a year later, also developed by Technos Japan. That game, Double Dragon, would effectively be the spiritual successor to Renegade and would inherit many of its features, like a fleshed-out combat system, urban warfare kinds of environments, and the inclusion of a game world with depth as opposed to just horizontal scrolling. Beyond those mechanics, though, Double Dragon would go on to introduce several additional features to the beat-em-up genre that had never been attempted before, including the ability to disarm an enemy and then use his own weapon against them, cutscenes in between levels to add a more cinematic feel to the game, and perhaps most importantly, the introduction of multiplayer combat. That's right, Double Dragon was the first beat-em-up game that enabled cooperative gameplay. Before Double Dragon, every beat 'em up was simply a one-player affair. Think about that for just a second. How much more fun is it to play beat 'em ups with a buddy? Without Double Dragon, we may have never known that joy. While the reasoning behind the multiplayer design decision was largely capitalistic, in that the development team figured they'd make more money if two people were playing at a time rather than one, the impact would be incredibly influential. Nearly every beat em up title from this point on would include cooperative multiplayer as a base feature of the game. Beyond its innovations, Double Dragon would go on to spawn numerous sequels and would influence countless games to follow. One of those games, as you might have guessed already, was the arcade version of Ninja Gaiden. On the surface, Ninja Gaiden appears to be a simple evolution of the Double Dragon formula. You fight through a number of stages, either solo or with a buddy ninja companion with the goal of defeating an evil cult trying to bring about the end of the world. Along the way, you'll punch, kick, and throw an assortment of enemies who attempt to get in your way while you jump, climb, and swing through six levels of ninja action gameplay. Now that description makes it sound just a little bit like Double Dragon but with ninjas, and honestly, you'd kind of be right. The thing is though, Ninjas were a pretty big deal in pop culture at the time, as were arcades, so the thought was if you mixed the two with any degree of expertise, you would almost be guaranteed a hit. And Ninja Gaiden was certainly a hit when it released to the arcades in 1988, quickly becoming one of the top-grossing arcade games of the time, with many critics declaring it as a successor to Double Dragon's beat 'em up throne. While many recognized that the game and its mechanics weren't exactly unique— There was also recognition that the gameplay graphics and overall fun of the title were still something to be commended, despite the feeling that the game was a bit unoriginal. Balancing out that unoriginality, though, was the fact that it had ninjas. Given its success in the arcades, it isn't a surprise to discover that this particular version of Ninja Gaiden would be ported to a number of home systems, including the Amiga, Commodore 64, IBM PC compatible computers, and the Atari Lynx portable console. Now, interestingly, in Europe, the game would be rebranded as Shadow Warriors, which was driven primarily by many European countries censoring the word ninja pretty extensively in the 80s and even into the 90s, especially when used in conjunction with any entertainment property that could potentially be targeted at children. The thought there, by the way, was that the term ninja implied violence, oftentimes associated with assassination. So many European nations of the time, particularly the United Kingdom, decided to avoid using the term wherever possible. So games like Ninja Gaiden became shadow warriors. Media properties like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles became Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. And movies like Three Ninjas Kick Back became a poor decision made by some film production company trying to make a quick buck. Okay, so maybe that last one doesn't quite fit. But regardless, Ninja Gaiden, or Shadow Warriors, depending on how you knew it, garnered significant attention in the arcades and continued to generate a degree of buzz even with its home ports. It was considered one of the better beat-em-up titles of its time, and many players teamed up in both arcades as well as the comfort of their living rooms to try and clean up the streets, ninja style. Now, the observant among you might be saying, okay, cool. Ninja Gaiden was ported to a bunch of systems after its arcade release. But you haven't mentioned the Nintendo version of the title, which is arguably the most well-known version of the game. So come on, what gives? And to that, I would reply, well, you're right. We haven't talked about the NES version of the game, primarily because the NES version of Ninja Gaiden was an entirely different, or at least mostly different, game than its arcade counterpart. In yet another example of two similar games not actually being direct ports of one another, Ninja Gaiden's eventual release on the NES would differ dramatically from the arcade Ninja Gaiden game. So let's talk about how that particular version of the game came to be. What you may not know, and what was a rarity in the 80s, was that Ninja Gaiden for the NES was developed concurrently with its arcade big brother, and was always intended to be a standalone experience mostly unrelated to the arcade title. To bring that version of the title to life, Tecmo turned to two of the newer members of its internal team, Misato Kato and Hideo Yoshizawa. Misato Kato has had a long and varied career, with perhaps his best-known work coming in the 90s through his employment with RPG developer Square, during which time he'd be responsible for scripting both Chrono Trigger and Chrono Cross, along with several other role-playing game ventures. Back in the late 80s, though? Kato was simply a recent college graduate who had acquired a job at Tecmo as a graphics artist. Once joining Tecmo, it didn't take long for him to receive his first real game development assignment. He was asked to join a team to work on a brand new ninja action game concept, with another relatively new employee, Hideo Yoshizawa, being the game's director. Like we mentioned earlier, the term ninja was experiencing a significant growth in popularity around this time, particularly in North America. And because of that popularity, Tecmo leadership decided that they didn't want to create only one ninja title, which was the already in development Ninja Guide and arcade game. They wanted to create two, with the second one being an NES exclusive. This NES exclusive title would be the game that Kato and Yoshizawa would be assigned to work on. Early on, discussion centered on what their game was actually going to be like. Both men had awareness of the Ninja Gaiden arcade title that the other team at Tecmo was working on, and they considered that it might be possible to simply port that title over to the NES. But with this one, Yoshizawa ended up having a different idea entirely. He recognized that, generally speaking, People playing arcade games were typically trying to get a high score, to be able to add their name to the game's leaderboard, and by extension have bragging rights amongst other arcade goers. The concept of a story in an arcade title was a bit of a rarity in the 80s. In fact, even in games that have a degree of story, like titles that allow level progression through a number of different scenes, ultimately culminating in some sort of boss fight, the story is really secondary to both the gameplay, and the score. Sure, you could have a loose narrative framework for your title, but in the arcades, especially in the late 80s, the goal of nearly every arcade game was to get the highest score possible. This general gameplay and score over story concept was almost directly applied to many home console titles released around the time, and it's really not very difficult to see why. Arcade games, generally speaking, predated home consoles, so when the time came for video game developers to begin releasing titles in the home, they pretty much had one source of inspiration, the games that were prevalent in arcades. So, a lot of home console releases, especially in the 8-bit era of gaming, were very arcade-centric kinds of experiences. While you did have some titles with deeper plots and alternate mechanics, the vast majority of home games were variations on what players had seen in arcades for years. Yoshizawa considered that an arcade title simply ported to a home console might be fun, but wouldn't ultimately be that deep of an experience. For one, arcade titles are usually fairly short in length, which makes sense considering that their existence relied upon single plays at a quarter apiece. Console titles, by contrast, required a significantly higher, albeit one-time, investment, and players expected to get a fair amount of gameplay out of that investment. Secondly, like we talked about, arcade titles usually had only the thinnest of plots to propel the action forward, which might work when you're playing a few minutes at a time, but might not be the best experience when you're sitting down in your living room, ready to become immersed in a new game. And thirdly, there was a commonly held belief across Tecmo leadership that any console game had to hit a certain level of difficulty, with the assumption that if a game wasn't difficult enough, players would simply throw it away, never to return to it again. With those three considerations in mind, Yoshizawa and the team set out to begin creating their NES Ninja game, known as Ninja Ryukenden, which translates into English as Legend of the Dragon Sword. As the team sat down to actually create the game, They basically threw away every aspect of the Ninja Gaiden arcade game and started from scratch, other than inheriting some very loose elements of the arcade experience, like the rough design of the game's first stage. Beyond that, though, nearly everything would be a unique Nintendo-only design decision. Rather than create a beat-em-up title in the style of Double Dragon like the arcade version, Yoshizawa and the team decided to create a more traditional platforming action title, reminiscent in many ways to Konami's Castlevania. And actually, if you put a screenshot of the two side-by-side, you might just think the two games shared the same engine, with a number of Ninja Raya design elements appearing to be almost directly copied from Castlevania. Both the players and boss hit points were depicted in nearly the same way, albeit occupying different sides of the screen. Instead of a whip, the main character of Ninja Ryukenden would use a katana, albeit with the same basic gameplay mechanics for defeating enemies. Even the special power-up system in Ninja Ryukenden would be copied from Castlevania, albeit with different items available that better fit in with a ninja aesthetic. As an example, a ninja wouldn't really throw holy water, but he certainly would throw a shuriken. Despite the difference in items, though, the actual mechanics of using those special items was pretty much identical between the two games. And speaking of the ninja aesthetic, a ninja game wouldn't be a ninja game unless it starred, well, a ninja. And here, Yoshizawa and the team created a protagonist that would end up having a long-lasting legacy. That character, of course, was Ryu Hayabusa, the wielder of the legendary dragon sword and son of famed ninja Joe Hayabusa. When the team sat down to design Ryu, they knew that they didn't want to create just any old ninja. They wanted to make the character unique and distinct. So, rather than cover Ryu up in traditional ninja clothes with most of his body obscured from sight, Ryu would get a sleeveless ninja vest to accentuate his muscles, They also wrote a fairly extensive backstory for the character, which ultimately would end up becoming the plot for the game. And oh boy, what a plot it was, especially for an 8-bit Nintendo title. Like we talked about, the majority of titles released around this time were not necessarily emphasizing story, especially action and platform titles. They were really being designed for the experience of playing the game, not the narrative quality. Think about a game like Castlevania. You knew you were playing a vampire hunter, and you knew that your goal was to find and defeat Dracula. But beyond that, there really wasn't much in the way of character motivation, or backstory, or lore, or dialogue, or really anything like that. It was simply you, vampire hunter, against a horde of monsters. Ninja Ryukenden was designed differently and the team chose to focus an extensive amount of time on the story for the game. In a move that was pretty unique for the time, Ninja Ryu would be split up into six distinct acts, taking inspiration from movies, and before each act, a fully developed cutscene would play. And these cutscenes were not simply static text and images. They were animated, detailed, almost cinematic sequences. Well, at least as close to cinematic sequences as you could get with an 8-bit Famicom system. And the cutscenes didn't just present a simple, basic story. There was intrigue. There was drama. There was double-crossing. There was revenge. And all of the scenes were presented and framed as though they were being filmed. In essence, Ninja Ryu Kenden was trying to tell a ninja story, and it was trying to do that by creating a form of ninja movie in the game. If you add it all up, Ninja Ryu ended up having over 20 minutes of pure cutscenes, which was absolutely unheard of for a game around this time. This focus on cinematic story presentation was driven primarily by Yoshizawa's prior career aspirations. When he was in college, he originally wanted to become a filmmaker, and he had high hopes that he would be able to eventually make a career in the movie business. This ended up not quite playing out the way he intended, but still, as a video game director, he had the freedom to try to weave his cinematic flair into the game itself, similar in many ways to how Hideo Kojima always wanted to make films, but instead applied his Hollywood ambitions to video game design. The cutscene mechanics that Yoshizawa and the team built into Ninja Ryukenden were so well received, in fact, that Tecmo would end up taking that system and using it for future titles. Dubbed the Tecmo Theater System, any game that utilized this particular tool would be designed similarly to Ninja Ryukenden, with each title using a horizontally split display, where the top half of the screen would be animated graphics, with the bottom half of the screen being text and other story-driven elements the Tecmo theater system would end up being used in seven games overall over its existence, spanning ninja action platformers, soccer or football titles, and full-fledged role-playing games. So Yoshizawa's innovation definitely ended up being well-used by the rest of Tecmo staff. Regarding the gameplay mechanics, beyond inheriting a lot of the core features from Castlevania, there was one overriding design goal amongst the team. Ninja Ryu Kenjin had to be a difficult experience which like we talked about was a core belief of the tecmo leadership team of the time the general thought here was the game's target audience was not the casual pick up a game and play for a few minutes kind of crowd the target audience here was people who played games every day as one of if not their sole hobby these players tecmo believed played games for the reward of accomplishing a seemingly impossible task By overcoming a game's challenges, these individuals would feel a sense of accomplishment that by itself would be reason enough to play a game. In effect, the challenge of the experience was as important, if not more so, than every other aspect of the game. So, the development team set out to create a punishingly difficult experience, complete with respawning enemies, tricky platforming jumps, bottomless pits, and bosses with damaging and nearly unavoidable attacks, at least later in the game the difficulty of Ninja Ryukenden would be so high that it would routinely be referenced in many gamers' hardest games of all time lists. And interestingly, one of the most difficult aspects of the game was caused by a seemingly unintentional glitch. So let's talk about that. The very final stage of the game, Act 6, features perhaps the most difficult series of levels in the entire game. In that act, the player has to traverse three different substages, all of which require pinpoint platforming while defeating and avoiding a number of irritatingly difficult enemies with tricky attack patterns and placements. Assuming you get past those 3 substages, you begin what can best be described as a boss gauntlet, where you have to beat not one, not two, but three different bosses, all of which have different attacks and patterns to adjust to. Now here's the kicker. If you fail at one of the bosses, and by fail here, I mean literally just die once, you end up going all the way back to the beginning of Act 6, which requires you to replay those three super difficult substages again before being allowed to once again tackle the boss gauntlet. When you compare that to the rest of the game, Many players believed this was unfair, because normally, if you fail in a boss fight, you can continue from the immediately preceding substage. So, in this instance, the normal game behavior, if you lost to a boss, would be to restart from the beginning of substage 6 3. Definitely a punishment, but not torture. Instead, you get sent back all the way to stage 6 1, and you have to begin the painful process of making your way back to the boss all over again again only the thing is going all the way back to stage 6-1 is actually a glitch in the game it was never intended to happen dying to a boss in the final stage was supposed to reset you back to stage 6-3 just like every other freaking boss fight in the game but no because of this glitch the game had its difficulty ramped up significantly even more so than what its base mechanics would suggest and even beyond that, the development team knew this glitch existed in the game. Masato Kado is on record, yes, on record, as saying that the team discovered the glitch, but that rather than correct it for the final game release, they decided to leave it in as a, and I quote, feature. Ooh, I don't know if I should golf clap that decision or punch a wall. I mean, I respect the focus on difficulty as well as the sheer good luck everyone attitude on display. But at the same time, I had to experience the pain of dealing with the entirety of Act 6 every time I died to the boss. So yeah, just a little bit conflicted. Anyway, eventually, all of the pieces of the game would come together, and Ninja Ryukenden would release on the Nintendo Famicom system in Japan in December of 1988, where it was met with nearly universal critical acclaim. That game would, of course, make its way to the Nintendo Entertainment System in North America as well, but not until March of the following year. And interestingly, in its transition to the NES, the game would undergo a name change. Now, while we've talked about the game's difficulty and the fact that the developers basically said the harder the better, one thing they thought was just too difficult, at least for American players, was how to pronounce Ninja Ryu Kenden. And I fully admit, I may be mispronouncing it during this episode. So... When the title would be ported to North America and the NES, Ninja Ryu Kenden would be rechristened as, you might have guessed it, Ninja Gaiden. And that wasn't the only change that accompanied the North American release, as the game still needed to be localized and translated for English-speaking audiences. So you might think, okay, hand the text files to a couple of translators, have them write out some English and add it to the game, and done, here's the game. Unfortunately for the development team, The reality of the situation was much more complex when we talk about the nes we have to realize that there are pretty strict image size and resolution requirements in order for the graphics of a given game to actually be displayable on a television screen because of those limitations developers didn't have an unlimited number of characters to use for text and oftentimes in the translation from japanese kanji symbols into english text compromises had to be made to fit the English characters onto the screen, which often meant rewording various phrases and even in some cases shortening the text to be more succinct. That by itself would be enough to make localization just a bit tricky, and considering the amount of text and number of cutscenes in the game, there was definitely more translation and compromise needed than many NES games of the time. Here though, things were even trickier as the text in the game wasn't actually stored as text it was stored as image files which meant rather than simply translating text the team needed to recompose all of the images associated with that text a time-consuming process that served to extend the amount of work needed to complete the nes port of the game regardless of that difficulty North America and the NES game-playing public would eventually get Ninja Gaiden in March of 1989, and similar to the Japanese release, players and critics would absolutely love the game, with many praising the game's graphics, cutscenes, gameplay, and overall presentation. Numerous media outlets would name the game as one of the best releases of the year, and over time, Ninja Gaiden would make its way onto many people's best games of all time list. Even Hideo Yoshizawa, the game's director would go on to state that the creation of Ninja Ryu Kenden, or Ninja Gaiden, depending on where you're we from, would be one of the proudest achievements of his video game development career. It was so well-received that Nintendo Power gave Ninja Gaiden what amounted to free advertising for a good year or two following its release, as the game ended up being featured in various sections of the magazine multiple times. Ninja Gaiden, in short, was a beloved masterpiece. Given how much people loved the game, you'd imagine that Ninja Gaiden would have quite the legacy, and you would be right. Ninja Gaiden spawned two direct sequels on the NES, a port to the PC Engine in Japan, a remake along with its sequels for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, it also had soundtrack CDs, and even a series of novelizations by the Scholastic Corporation, which, by the way, I vividly recall being available at my local school book fair back in the early 90s. In later years, Ninja Gaiden would return to more modern video game consoles, spawning a new trilogy of games for the Xbox, Xbox 360, and Sony PlayStation 3, in addition to various ports and spin-offs across other consoles and phone platforms in the early 2000s. Today, it's unclear if or when Ninja Gaiden will return to the gaming spotlight, though at a minimum, there was a bit of a crossover with Team Ninja's release of Neo several years ago. I'm hopeful we will at some point receive a new Ninja Gaiden adventure, but I honestly don't know when or if that will be. Ninja Gaiden is absolutely an important release in video game history. As one of the few titles on the NES to put story front and center, despite being a largely action-driven affair, it paved the way for countless titles to follow and exhibited a degree of difficulty that embodied the concept of Nintendo Hard. It may not have quite as much of a presence today, but that in no way diminishes its historical significance. Ninja Gaiden is one of those games that remains on many gamers' list of all-time classics, and as such, it is certainly a title that should be respected and never forgotten. now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So let's talk about Ninja Gaiden. And by the way, I am going to be talking about the Nintendo Entertainment System version of Ninja Gaiden. We're not going to talk about the arcade version for the purposes of this specific section of the podcast, simply because the NES version is the version that I grew up with. It is the version that I played countless times as a kid, never beat it as a uh, child, but I did in fact beat it for this podcast, and I'm incredibly proud of that achievement because it is hard, and we will talk about that in a little bit. So let's talk about the general style of the game. Ninja Gaiden is a side-scrolling action game. It's both action and platforming, because as you move through every level, you will have a number of different enemies that inhabit any single stage, and you will move from left to right across the screen, sometimes from right to left, but horizontally, you will move across the stage, and you will face all of those different enemies. Some enemies use projectiles, some enemies fly at you, some enemies jump at you, some enemies are more melee-based, but there are a ton of different enemies across each stage. And it's not like it's a one-hit-kill kind of thing, this is not like Contra. This is much more like Castlevania, like we were talking about. You have a life bar. And as you get hit, there are various damage amounts that get taken from your life bar depending on what enemy hits you. So some enemies might just take a single bit of hit point away from you. There might be other enemies that take a huge chunk out of your life bar as you're moving through the level. So you do have to be careful. And the way that the game is designed, it's designed so that it basically wants you to move around fairly constantly. So between attacking enemies... Jumping from platform to platforms. Climbing up walls, because you can climb walls in this game. Not not a direct climb, it's more of a bounce back and forth or kick back and forth from one wall to the other kind of thing, although there is also a special mechanic where you can kind of scale a single wall just by jumping outwards and pushing back towards the wall, and you could scale individual walls like that. But it's not like an actual climbing the wall kind of style, which came in a future Ninja Gaiden sequel. In this one, you have to do jumps in order to climb walls. But as you're moving through each of these stages, you have to combine the timing of your jumps, the timing of your movement, the timing of the enemies, avoiding projectiles or enemies flying at you, and you have to also try to kill them. Now, you do have some benefit, or the game gives you some ways to help even the score a little bit. You do have special powers, and we'll talk more about them in just a little bit. But overall, each level is a delicate balance between platforming and enemy avoidance, as well as enemy actual combat to try to defeat the individual enemies. So across the entirety of the game, you will go through 20 total stages. 14 of those are the platform action levels like we were just talking about. And in between those levels, or at least in between each of the acts, there are boss fights. So the boss fights are very much a single screen kind of affair. You enter the boss arena, the screen fades to black, it comes back up, and you are fighting any number of several different bosses across the game. So the way that the game typically works is you start on these action levels. And like we were talking about, they're horizontally scrolling levels. A lot of times though, they do have multiple screens. So when you are on one of these action levels, the action will scroll horizontally very smoothly. It's not like a legend of Zelda kind of experience where you get to the edge of the screen and then a new screen uh, paints. It's more like a super Mario brothers kind of thing or Castlevania, where as you move to the edge of the screen, the screen scrolls with you. Now with each of those stages though, it's not like you only have a single stage per horizontal scrolling plane. You actually can have multiple screens worth of horizontally scrolling space that you have to traverse. So when you get to the end of a given level or end of a given horizontal plane, which I guess is the best way to describe it, when you get to the edge of moving horizontally. There are sometimes ladders that you might have to climb up or down, or walls that you may have to scale, and that brings you to another part of the substage that's not necessarily a different substage, but it could be part of the same substage. And some of those substages can be fairly long. So when we talk about continuing, because the game does have continues, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but when we talk about continuing, there are basically two things we're talking about. If you lose all of your lives, you can continue. And that will bring you back to the very beginning of the substage that you're on. So say you die at substage 5-2, you will restart 5-2. If, however, you lose a life but you still have some more lives and you've reached a different horizontal section of a given substage, you can start from that section, assuming you still have lives. Once again, if you lose all your lives, you continue from the very beginning of the substage. If you still have some lives available, you can continue from the latest horizontal plane or horizontally scrolling section of the stage that you have reached. Regardless, that is still a bit tricky because... Each substage is populated with a ton of different enemies. And I do have to say, yes, the game is difficult, but I really believe that the game designers did a really nice job balancing out all of the different enemy types and really figuring out what made sense, albeit from a more challenging perspective, but what made sense for each of the encounters as you move through a given level. Because, like we were talking about, you could face a certain screen where you have enemies shooting at you and you're on the very thin platform and then a eagle flies out from nowhere and tries to knock you off the platform and then there's another enemy that's jumping from below like there's just a lot of different things that can be happening at any point in time and the game does a nice job of balancing out the mechanics of what you need to do with the design of the levels and the enemy encounters that being said in almost all instances the enemies are designed to absolutely wreck your day. And the way that they used or the way the game designers utilized all of those different combinations of enemies, that's really what drove the difficulty in the game. So just a quick example. Let's say you're on a stage and you have to jump from one platform to another. Typical of what you might see in any platform game. Okay, that sounds easy enough. Fine. You got to jump from one platform to another. Only the platform you need to jump to has an enemy on it. That, after a few seconds, kind of walks back and forth a few steps, and then it stops and it starts firing bullets in your direction. Okay, fine, so we have to time the jump then, to land on the platform when the enemy is moving away from you. Only, when you land on that platform, a flying bird spawns on the screen and just makes a direct beeline for you. So now, you're dealing with an enemy potentially firing bullets at you, as well as a bird flying full speed at your face, all while positioned on a platform with no room to maneuver. And by the way, if you get touched physically by any of those projectiles, like a bullet, or if an enemy touches you, you'll get knocked back. Which in this situation probably means you just fell to your death and have to restart the level. So some of you may hear that kind of situation and think, no way, this is not the game for me. But honestly, and I just can't get this across enough even though it's super difficult in almost all instances. And I do want to stress almost because there are a couple of couple of areas where I think very things are a little bit unfair. But in almost all instances, the platforming and enemy sections are entirely beatable once you figure out the patterns and timing. Now, the almost piece here applies to the fact that one of the core mechanics of the game is that enemies will respawn if you don't move far enough past their spawn point. And this can make some situations really tricky, especially when a bunch of dive-bombing birds keep spawning when all you want to do is take a breather before the next tricky platforming sequence. At the same time, the spawn points of the enemies can actually sometimes be used against the game, because if you inch forward a bit on the screen, you can sometimes make an enemy despawn itself, leaving you with a much less tricky jump. Anyway, we're going to talk much more about difficulty in a little bit, but I wanted to give a general framework for how many of the action stages feel, just so anyone who may not have played the game before can understand the overall feeling of the experience. Beyond the overall level design, each act eventually culminates in a boss fight with every boss designed uniquely and with specific mechanics that you have to figure out and avoid or exploit. Now, I've got to give the designers credit here. The game does a pretty good job of ramping up boss difficulty, starting with an enemy that is pretty darn simple to avoid and attack and shouldn't really give you much difficulty from a first boss perspective. Now, as the bosses go on, things get considerably more difficult until eventually you're fighting an enemy that constantly spews fireballs at you. You need to climb up a nearby wall, jump over the projectiles all while you avoid an enemy that's on the ground trying to kill you. And then you slash the real enemy a few times and then repeat that process on the other side of the screen. Like the mechanics really ramp up in this game. It is a ramp up, though, and you will see as you go through the game, your skill gets better and the difficulty gets harder. And I think that's actually a testament to the design of the game. It is designed well from that perspective. Now, unlike the action stages, all of the boss fights do take place on a single screen, which means you don't have to worry about navigating platforms or at least you don't have to worry about navigating a scrolling section of the game while you're trying to fight these bosses, which would probably just be absolutely insane. So each level of the game, even the first level, is challenging. But the game does give you a few different mechanics that help to level the playing field. And we're going to talk about the power-ups now, because these play, depending on your play style, can play a big role in the game. So as you navigate each level, you'll encounter a bunch of different power-ups, all of which are useful in different situations. And these can range from simple shurikens that you fire straight ahead to boomerang shurikens that fly back and forth around you to a rising diagonal fire wave that lets you easily dispatch airborne enemies to a spinning jump attack that can absolutely wreck some bosses, including at least the first stage of the final boss, which I watched a video on. And saw somebody absolutely destroy that boss in literally less than a second, which I thought, wow, that's kind of awesome. I I did not use that mechanic because I couldn't actually get to the boss with a spinning jump. But regardless, it's kind of awesome that it exists. And then there's also a Ring of Fire power-up that you get that encapsulates your entire body for a pretty short time. That's effectively an invincibility kind of power-up. The thing with those power-ups, though, is that they are not unlimited though there is an energy mechanic where each power-up uses up some of your energy, and that energy can only be replenished by picking up energy symbols throughout each level. I will say that the power-ups are nice, but they are very situational, because there is no guarantee that you're going to have the power-up you want in the situation you're facing. Plus, even if you find the power-up that you love, as soon as you die, you lose any power-up that you had picked up. So you can't really rely on power-ups for the majority of your playthrough unless you're really good at the game. Even if you're really good at the game, though, I would wager a bet that you'll eventually die. And while you do have several lives, there's probably going to be a point when you lose them all like we were talking about a little bit earlier the game does have unlimited continues and you just go back to the beginning of the last substage you were in except for act six where the final boss gauntlet will send you all the way back to the beginning of the act like we were talking about that glitch that the developers left in as a feature no i'm not bitter but anyway what that means is that with enough perseverance and a long enough supply of electricity you can eventually beat the game despite its heightened level of difficulty it's not easy but you can become proficient enough to eventually conquer it if you have the willpower. So before we move on to start talking about some of the more specific aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love seeing how various companies marketed their products, especially because around this time in particular, we didn't really have a ton to go off of when we were trying to make a buying decision in a video or computer game store. A lot of times, our buying decisions happened to be because of what the box looked like. If the box looked cool, if the back of the box said some cool things, we may just buy the title outright. It's not like we had YouTube or the internet to really look up gameplay videos, and we didn't even always have magazine articles or magazines to look at to look up some of this kind of stuff. So a lot of times our buying decision was literally based on what the box looked like and what was written on the back of the box. So for Ninja Gaiden for the NES, the back of the box says Ninja Gaiden. Ninja action. The stage is set for conspiracy, mystery, and evil in America. Come with Ninja Ryu as he takes you on his fateful journey. Tecmo's unique cinema display system develops the story stage by stage. You piece together the puzzle while watching the movie-like graphics and decide what action to take. Use the secret sword and items collected during the action scenes to fight your way to your goal. And of course, the box also includes some screenshots on it. One that shows the Tecmo theater system and the other, actually, I guess two of them kind of show the cutscenes, And then one of them shows a boss fight. So that's how they marketed the game on the box. And, you know, it looked pretty darn good. I do like the fact that they accentuated the Tecmo theater system and how they were kind of really bringing the story to life and the cinematic kinds of cutscenes. I don't know that I would necessarily call the graphics movie like because they are very much 8 bit, but I can understand from an advertising perspective what they were going for. And. The fact is, I did buy Ninja Gaiden on the NES back when I was a kid, so it must have worked on me. Anyway, let's get started talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. For an 8-bit NES title, the game looks really good. Enemies are all well designed, especially the bosses, who are often bigger sprites than their normal enemy counterparts. And Ryu, as a main character, is distinct and awesome looking, which definitely helps give you the feeling that you are a master ninja bent on revenge. The stages in the game are a little bit of a mixed bag, with some levels, like the first one, looking great. It really captures the feel of a city street scene, followed by a boss fight in a bar. Other stages, definitely look like the environment they're trying to represent, but they can sometimes be a little bit generic. As an example, when you're climbing up a mountain, you're basically presented with a lot of brown rock, some ledges, and more brown rock. Now granted, the NES isn't exactly the most powerful console, but some of the stages feel almost like palette swaps to enhance the diversity. Obviously, the actual platforming and enemies in each stage are different, which is great, but some of the stages are kind of like okay, here's some brown rock, and oh, here's some white rock on this other stage. You never feel like you're experiencing the same environment per se, so there is diversity there. It's just that a lot of the game levels don't feel as well realized as the very first stage of the game. And with this, I have to wonder if it was partially because the team tried to mimic the more graphically advanced arcade version of the game for the first stage. I have no way of proving that. It's simply conjecture on my part. Animations, though, are all very smooth, though there are some sequences where you get some flickering, which was pretty common in NES games when too many sprites were appearing on a single horizontal plane. That's not a deal-breaker at all, because this was so prevalent on older systems that you could almost consider it a feature, but I do feel the need to mention it for awareness. I also should mention that the cutscenes looked awesome, with highly detailed, at least for the time, artwork for all of the characters. Like we said, I don't know that I would claim that the graphics looked movie-like, because these really are 8-bit graphics, but the presentation of the cutscenes served to improve the overall experience of the game, and the presentation of those cutscenes were certainly cinematic. Overall, the game looked pretty darn good, and other than some of the environments, the graphics were exactly what I would expect from an 8-bit action platform title. Moving on to the sound and music, I want to preface this by saying... I played a lot of Ninja Gaiden as a kid, so there are some songs and musical pieces that are simply embedded in my brain. A prime example of that, the beginning of every single act has a certain little jingle, for lack of a better term, that plays, which I will likely never forget. Each of the stages similarly have specific musical pieces that play in the background, and for the most part, the songs are fairly memorable and well-matched with the action on the screen. I don't know that there's any single track that I would consider iconic, but there's also nothing I'd particularly complain about either. Sound effects also sounded fine, and there is definitely a satisfying, crunchy sound that plays every time you defeat an enemy. The one thing I do want to call out, though, is the music that accompanies the cutscenes, which, from my perspective, was just top-notch. Unlike the general stage soundtracks, where each piece of music is designed to repeat on a loop, the cutscene music is scored much more like a movie, with specific musical cues timed specifically to occur with the story being presented on the screen. I thought the way they composed those scenes and how the music was integrated into the cutscenes was awesome, and it definitely felt cinematically inspired. Overall, the music and sound effects in the game are pretty much on point for an action platform game, with the cutscene music serving to distinguish Ninja Gaiden from the rest of the games in the genre. Moving on to the narrative and story, you play as Ryu Hayabusa, the son of legendary ninja Joe Hayabusa. One day, your father loses a duel against a rival ninja, which, by the way, is shown in an awesome introductory cutscene with clashing swords in the moonlight. And it is up to you to seek revenge for your father's apparent death. As is often the case, what begins as a simple revenge story eventually evolves into a save the world kind of situation, and as you play the game, you'll encounter a number of different plot twists. You'll be double-crossed, you'll experience loss, you'll discover hidden truths, and you may, possibly, even end up saving the day while finding true love. The story here, while simple, was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. It felt exactly like what you would see in a ninja martial arts movie kind of experience. And I'd even go so far as saying Ninja Gaiden has one of the better stories of any NES title ever, simply because... It actually has a fully fleshed out story. We've talked about the cutscenes and the Tecmo Theater system already, but it bears repeating. The inclusion of cutscenes into the game is a literal game changer and makes Ninja Gaiden feel different than almost every other NES game out there. That's not to say that there weren't other NES games with a strong narrative, but this is one of the few NES games that actually makes the story a central focus of the experience. I can't stress it enough. The cutscenes here are awesome. Sure, by today's standards, eh, they're pretty darn simple and they are straightforward. But as a kid playing this in the late 80s, this was revolutionary. And I remember even being a bit scared when dealing with the reveal of the big bad guy as the story progressed. Is the story here Academy Award worthy? No, not in the least. But it is an excellent story for an action-driven title, and it honestly feels like you could see a variation of the narrative as a full-fledged movie. It was genuinely engaging, and I enjoyed it immensely. Moving on to the playability and controls, the controls here are pretty straightforward. You run side-to-side using your D-pad, and you use the A and B button on your controller to jump and swing your sword. Beyond the basics, you also have the ability to utilize power-ups you find throughout your adventure, and can also scale walls, either by ninja flipping from one wall to another in a sort of zigzag pattern, or even using some trickier jumping to scale a single wall by jumping slightly away and upward multiple times, grabbing onto the wall as you continue to ascend higher. So overall, the controls are pretty simple, but they are incredibly effective, and they are tight. These are really tight controls. I always felt in control of my character, and because there wasn't really any inertia associated with jumping, all of the platforming sections could be completed with near-pinpoint accuracy. Which, by the way, is almost a requirement because from a playability perspective, I've got to admit, this game is hard. And we've already talked a little bit about the difficulty, but let me reiterate, this game will kill you. That being said... For the most part, the difficulty here is designed in such a way to reward you for becoming more proficient with the game, as opposed to simply punishing you for your lack of skill. Though, I will say that punishment certainly exists. Yes, it is difficult, but it is doable. Though, I do have to say, I have a couple of critiques. First of all, the whole concept of respawning enemies. Totally unnecessary from my perspective do you know how bad it feels to clear a particularly challenging jump only to have an insane bird that you already killed, respawn and then dive bomb you to oblivion? If you've played Ninja Gaiden, then the short answer to that question is yes. You know exactly how that feels. You know, actually I think I've mentioned the birds in the game more times than any other enemy. You know why that is? Because the birds are awful, vile creatures whose existence only serves the purpose of breaking your will. Honestly, These birds, man, I don't even want to talk about them. I probably died more to birds in this game than any other enemy type. And that's saying something when you're also facing off against enemies with guns, swords, and other deadly weapons. Other than the birds, uh, no, actually, I take that back. I still want to talk about the birds. Did you know there are different types of birds in the game? And sometimes the game throws multiple birds at you at once. Yeah, absolutely brutal, despicable creatures. Okay, now that I got that off my chest the rest of the game beyond the birds is also difficult but it's not arbitrarily difficult though i will say leaving the glitch in the game that makes you go back to the beginning of act six if you fail on the final boss gauntlet is just simply cruel overall though despite the difficulty the game remains completely playable even today and the feeling of accomplishment you get after finally clearing a particularly challenging level is amazing So overall, how did it feel to play Ninja Gaiden? I gotta say, it was a blast to play. Yeah, there are a couple rough points, primarily related to certain aspects of the difficulty that just feel mean. But those rough points are far outshined by what the game does well. And for me, the best parts of the game are the actual gameplay of the experience, coupled with the cutscenes and the way that the story was delivered. If you've never played Ninja Gaiden and you want to give it a go, be prepared. Everything people tell you about the difficulty is true, but if you persevere, you'll find an action platforming experience that, for very good reason, is considered one of the best NES games of all time. So what is our verdict on Ninja Gaiden? Let me get it out of the way up front. Ninja Gaiden is a great game. It's well-designed, mostly, It controls and feels great to play, it looks good, it sounds good, and its cutscene innovations are pretty much second to none in the 8-bit space. But, I do think the difficulty here is going to turn off a lot of people. Here, let me give you a comparison. We played Contra previously, and that game is also considered to be one of the more difficult experiences on the NES. In Contra, though, the amount of randomization is minimized, and while there are occasional random enemies and a degree of continuous spawning... The whole thing feels designed in such a way that, given enough experience, you can learn the best way to get through any given level. In Ninja Gaiden, you have a mostly similar experience, but here, the way enemies respawn, coupled with the tightness of the platforming required to get past some sections, creates a situation where you never quite feel like you can reach mastery, despite your own skill being adequate and despite feeling like you actually have control over your character. Meaning. No matter how good you get at the game, there's always a chance that the game will randomly decide to make your life miserable. I will say that there are only a few late game sections where this becomes overtly obvious, but those late game sections also ratchet up the frustration levels a lot. It's not that I dislike difficulty, and I've said before, I actually enjoy difficult experiences. What I don't like, however, is difficulty that feels like it can't be overcome through improved skill. Put another way, difficulty because of random luck just doesn't feel so great. I want to stress, it's not like the entirety of Ninja Gaiden exhibits that type of random difficulty. But as I'm considering how to rate the title, I have to keep in mind that this is a decidedly rough patch that, if smoothed out, could have let the game remain ultra-challenging while reducing a lot of frustration along the way. Because of those reasons... Ninja Gaiden is, from my perspective, a high-ranking addition to our list of golden oldies. It is a quality experience, and I highly recommend everyone play the title at some point in their lives. Can I unequivocally recommend it to literally everyone? No, not really. But I feel very comfortable saying that the game is a quality, worthwhile experience where the good far outweighs the bad, and as a result, Ninja Gaiden has just become our newest golden oldie that was our episode on ninja gaiden i hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed creating it if you'd like to reach out let me know how i'm doing provide feedback comments suggestions or just talk about classic games and technology in general I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord, once again, is the best place to interact with me and the rest of the podcast community. We also have a newly launched Patreon, which is Patreon.com slash ClassicGamingToday. So if you're looking for even more Classic Gaming Today content, that is the place to be. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Maniac Mansion, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast aggregation engines, and if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about trying to bolster star counts or trying to gather a bunch of positive, high-ranking reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast it can be. I have always been focused on trying to create the best content to be able to deliver the best content. The only way to make sure that I'm continuing to do that is by getting feedback from the community. We get new listeners every single day, which is absolutely awesome. I am dedicated to making sure that this is the best possible podcast I can create we'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on maniac mansion until then remember sometimes the games of the past are just as good if not better than the games of today goodbye everyone